You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Well, good morning. Well, good morning. Good morning, team. Ashley, it's great to have you with us this morning as our uh, guest preacher. So glad to be with you all. Thanks for the invitation. Yep. What a week, y'all. What a week. What what a week. What what a what a year. What a four years. What a time. What a time. Hey, I wonder, Ashley, if you might just tell our people as they come in, just really briefly, what it is you're up to at the UUA and some of the work you've been doing. Yeah. Well, first of all, hi, First Universalist. So good to be with you. Um, I know many of you, but um, for those of you who don't know me, I am uh, the Reverend Ashley Haran. I am one of your affiliated community ministers at First Universalist. Um, and I serve our Unitarian Universalist Association as the organizing strategy director, which means that I hold the uh, outward facing justice ministries of our association. So side with love, you the vote, love resists, um, climate justice, multicultural LGBTQ stuff. That's all the amazing team of folks that I get to work with. Um, and so you can imagine this is a, a busy season for us over, um, particularly at you, you the vote. Um, I just like, I, I want to like vomit my love for my people everywhere right now because they're so amazing. Um, you, you the vote got started this year and, um, this week, we are going to hit 3 million contacts with voters um, across yes. the country. Uh, and, you know, we probably got about 4,500 um, active volunteers doing calls, phone banks, texting, election protection, all kinds of stuff. Um, probably about 450 congregations across the country. Now, keep in mind, we've got about a thousand UU congregations. So a good half of our folks are like actively involved. And when we say actively, that means they've got teams like First Universalist doing coordinated efforts. Um, we've sent, now you ready for some really fun stats? We've sent 1,115,594 million letters and postcards. Um, we have made more than 600,000 calls to voters. Um, so probably that looks like, you know, you don't always get everybody, but that's more than 50,000 voice-to-voice -voice conversations with folks about our values showing up in the world. Um, you know, 5,000 plus voter registrations that we can document, all that kind of stuff. So the numbers are great. I also know that we are, um, you know, our folks are showing up knowing that we're headed into like a pretty turbulent time in the um, post-election day period. Um, and so like this morning, the New York Times ran a beautiful article about um, our election defender squad in Ohio featuring um, my colleague, Joan Van Beesler, who's a ministry, runs the UU Justice Ohio Network. Um, and the ways that we've been coordinating with organizations like the Frontline to make sure that we're counting every vote, that we're helping people have an unintimidated experience of voting. Um, our folks are on fire, y'all. And yeah. just, I am proud of our people. Yeah, so I'll Actually, stop there, but man. That is so great. Thank you just for like that inspirational bit about the work you're doing and so many other UUs around the country that are involved with this work. In these days of uncertainty and not knowing what's next, there are some things we do know. 
We know that no matter what happens on Tuesday and what we do or do not know about the outcome of the election in the days to come, we know that we will gather again as a body for worship. We will do that Wednesday evening. We will do that Sunday morning. We know that we will bring our hearts and our minds and our bodies back into this space together. We will reform this community, this community committed to welcoming and affirming and protecting the light in each human heart, this community committed to listening deeply to where love is calling us next. And we will reform this community that strives with humility and courage and compassion to create a more just world. We know we will come back together to reform this community that is committed to racial justice. This is who we are, and this is what we do together. As we come into this place, bringing our bodies and spirits and minds together, I wanna to invite you just to take a deep, deep breath with me. And exhale. That may be the work for the days to come of just finding that presence to exhale. And then take another deep breath to come into the moment and to exhale again with some degree of awareness that we are here, we are not alone, we are together. morning. Hello, friends, especially younger friends. So happy to be with you here today. Today is a very special day for me, and I want to share it with you. Today is the first day of a two-day ritual called Dia de los Muertos in Mexico. You've probably seen some decorations in stores. You've probably heard about Dia de los Muertos because it's pretty popular these days. And perhaps some of you have even seen the movie Coco, which is also about Dia de los Muertos. And if you haven't, I recommend it. It's lovely, it's respectful, it's a really good tribute to the tradition of Dia de los Muertos. And for those of us who are Mexican, it has some really funny insider jokes. The movie is about a young boy, Miguel, who wants to be a singer and who falls into the land of the spirits. And he has all of these adventures trying to get back to his life. And along the way, he gets to meet his ancestors and he has to figure out his relationship with them. Those of you who have seen this movie will remember that one of the key pacts we make with our ancestors is that we must place their photograph on the ofrenda, the altar that we create for Dia de los Muertos. You can see our family's ofrenda right here over my shoulder under the tree. That's our ofrenda. The photographs on the altar keep our ancestors' memory alive, but also the passport that allows them to come visit us for these few days where the veil is thin and the worlds can touch. So I wanna share with you a picture of my ancestors. Let me see if I can make sure that I'm showing it properly. These are also my ancestors. And do you see that tiny little girl right in the middle of the picture holding her aunt's hand with a big flower on her head, that's my mom. These are all my tias and tios and abuelo and abuela and bisabuelo and bisabuela. These are all my people. 
And this picture will go back on the altar when I am done sharing this story with you. It's really important for me to name and to remember my ancestors. When I think of my grandparents, for example, I think of the great joy and pride that they had in me. Maybe some of you also have a grandparent that puffs up like a bird. So it's really proud when you walk in the room. They're just so happy to see you. Or maybe you have an uncle or an aunt or a family member that can't take enough pictures of you, is always chasing you with their phone. You know what I'm talking about? It's really nice to feel so loved. And it's also true that it can also be a little embarrassing. That's also true. But I also want to name that sometimes our relationship to our ancestors can also be a little more complicated. Sometimes our relationships can even be difficult. Some of us don't know our lineage. We don't know who our people are. Some of us were adopted transracially or transnationally. Some of us feel like we can't be ourselves with our families. They don't understand us. Some of us have parents who left their families of origin as a choice to heal and thrive away from difficult or abusive environments. Some of us are embarrassed that our ancestors were not on the side of love because they owned slaves or made their fortunes by stealing from indigenous peoples. Some of us have been taught to be ashamed about our ancestors. How do we deal with this? I say we deal with this with imagination. Our ancestors don't only have to be the parents of the parents of our parents. Our ancestors can also be the people that we look up to because they fought for what was right. If you have a challenge with mental illness, for example, then your ancestors are the people who asked for help and survived and found a way to take care of themselves. If you are queer, your ancestors are the people that found ways to make a family and live their love before marriage equality. So when things get hard or scary, like they have been for the past few weeks and months, it's good to remember that our ancestors made it through hard and scary times too. When we don't know what happens next, it's good to remember that our ancestors had times of uncertainty and worry too. Both our genetic ancestors and our spiritual ancestors worked through some tough stuff. They made it. We will make it too. And we are also someone's ancestor. One day, someone will remember us and talk about the good things that we did and the good trouble that we got into. We can continue the resilience and survival of our ancestors. We can do the work that our ancestors didn't do. Let's remember that. Let's stay focused on what legacy we want to leave behind. Let's remember that we are a part of a long line of people who have been bending the arc toward justice. And we're gonna keep doing that no matter what. Okay, now we're gonna sing. And this song is going to help us connect to our ancestors even more. Now, the recording that we're about to share is actually of me singing with Aliana and Sofia, which is really funny. Um, and we're gonna sing a song called Gathered Here. I'm gonna paste and copy the words in the chat in case you don't know them. There we go. 
And I would really love for you to sing along with us. And even if you want to sing maybe around, because we're going to sing it three times. But before we start singing, I'm going to invite us to try something a little bit different. I'm going to ask us to use this song as the beginning of our time of prayer. Because this song is a prayer. It's a call to spirit to come be with us. So before we actually start singing, I'm going to ask you to take a few moments to center and to breathe, just like we always do when we're getting ready to pray. I invite you to breathe in peace and breathe out love. Peace love. One more time. Peace love. Spirit of life and love, we call on you to be with us here now. Ancestors, be with us here today. We sing you here with us. Let us begin. Gathered here in the mystery of the hour, gathered here in one strong body, Gathered here in the struggle and the power, Spirit, draw near. Gathered here in the mystery of the hour, Gathered here in one strong body, Gathered here in the struggle and the power, Spirit, draw near. Gathered here in the mystery of the hour, Gathered here in one strong body, Gathered here in the struggle and the power, Spirit, draw near. Spirit, draw near. Spirit, draw Thank you, friends. Thank you for your help in calling spirit near. We need spirit these days. This is a time of change and uncertainty and potential turmoil. We have been working our way through this pandemic and toward Tuesday, the day of the election, one of the most important elections of our lifetimes. We are holding so much. Our lives are complicated and sometimes challenging. Spirit of life, spirit of love, beloved ancestors, stay with us now. Make yourselves felt in our hearts and our souls that we may be comforted with your presence. Dear ancestors, join the cloud of witnesses that is this community of communities at First Universalist. Be with us.
Good morning, beloveds. So I'm going to ask everybody, uh, do you have any cash on you or nearby? Now, I'm an older millennial myself, so you know this doesn't come naturally to me, but I, I, I drug in my purse, and this is not a rhetorical question. So if you can go in your little cup holder of paper clips or in your wallet that's right by you and grab a coin or a bill, whatever denomination, doesn't matter, and take it and take a look at it. So no matter what denomination you have, it's going to have three things on it. You're going to see uh, how much it's worth. Here, this is my quarter, uh, and it says it's a, it's a quarter dollar, right? You're going to see the words United States of America up there at the top. And then somewhere on it, on my quarter, it's here on the head side, it will say, in God we trust. In God we trust. Isn't that curious? On every single piece of currency in the United States. Now, of course, there's a story that goes with that. So in January of 1861, Abraham Lincoln was inaugurated as the 16th president of the United States. And then just a few months into his first term, the long-standing tensions over slavery boiled over and the Southern states seceded from the Union, beginning the American Civil War. It was in the midst of that explosive context that President Lincoln appointed Salmon P. Chase as the Secretary of the Treasury. Mr. Chase had recently actually gone up against President Lincoln for the nomination for the presidency in the newly formed Republican Party, and he had lost. But before that, he had served as the governor of Ohio, as a United States senator, and also as a prominent lawyer who was nicknamed the Attorney General for Fugitive Slaves because of his long record of defending enslaved people and abolitionists. Now, shortly after Mr. Chase began his service as Treasury Secretary, he received a letter and it went, Dear Sir, you are about to submit your annual report to the Congress respecting the affairs of the national finances. One fact touching our currency has hitherto been seriously overlooked. I mean, the recognition of the almighty God on some form on our coins. Now, the letter goes on to make several very specific and very mansplainy suggestions, if you ask me, about which words to use and where to place them on the currency. But then it concludes, this would make a beautiful coin to which no possible citizen could object. This would relieve us from the ignominy of heathenism. This would place us openly under the divine protection which we have personally claimed. From my heart, I have felt our national shame in disowning God as not the least of our present national disasters. Yours sincerely, Reverend M.R. Watkinson, Minister of the Gospel, Ridleyville, Pennsylvania. So within a week, Secretary Chase wrote to the director of the National Mint, and he said, no nation can be strong except in the strength of God or safe except in his defense. The trust of our people in God should be declared on our national coins. 
You will cause a device to be prepared without unnecessary delay with a motto expressing in the fewest and tersest words possible this national recognition. So by 1864, the words, in God we trust, first appeared on the two-cent coin. In the subsequent times, Salmon P. Chase established the national banking system and a standardized system of currency. And all the denominations of currency from that point forward till today had those words, in God we trust, on them. And the system that he established was what allowed the North to finance their crusade to win the Civil War. Now, this story is striking to me not because of how clearly it points to the very sticky relationship between church and state in this nation. <laughs> There's no question that religion, money, and patriotism have always been closely intertwined here. And in fact, we could argue that Christian supremacy and capitalism, ethno-nationalism, and white supremacy were the four horsemen of the apocalypse that brought forth the Civil War in 1861, just as they are now again rising and riding together to threaten whatever progress we have made toward democracy and freedom as a union, imperfect as we may be. But what is striking to me is how simply this story points toward our human yearning for certainty and for trust in the midst of upheaval and chaos. The writer of that letter, he, he says, we're at war. We can't trust our fellow citizens. We might die in battle. The country is on the brink of destruction. But at least, at least we can put our trust in God to whom we can pray for a reunited nation. Remind us of that each time we buy our bread or pay our debts. Trust in God, trust in country. I wish sometimes that I had Reverend Watkinson's faith. Lately, I have found myself sitting with the ghosts of the ancestors who witnessed this country splinter into civil war 160 years ago. Perhaps it's because the veil is thin. Perhaps it's because we are in a moment when it is very hard not to connect ourselves with the struggles of those who've come before. But as I sit with these ghosts in quiet company together, ghost and flesh on the front porch of prayer and imagination, we sip our tea, we speak of these strange times then and now, not so very different. We talk of the many whose bodies were and are shackled and coerced into labor and the few who profit from the sweat off their backs those who yearn for the creation of a new future in which all of us are safe and well and free, and those who fear that there's not enough to go around and are ready to fight to defend their own little share. We speak of those who've never fallen for the myth of the American dream, those who think we might someday still make it a reality, and those who would go back to a nostalgic past in which this nation was somehow great. Ghost in flesh, we name our fear, our rage, our hope, our incredulity, our weariness, looking around us as both 
collapse and resurrection seem equally possible. Flesh to ghost in the confessional space of these imagined front porch conversations. I admit out loud that in this swirling chaos, I can't place my trust in either God or country. I hear them murmur and chuckle and they sigh and say, neither could we. And of course, then the conversation turns to the God and the country in which we do not trust, do not believe. That God who intervenes in history to shape the course of our lives and who elects some for death and some for survival, who promises us rewards in another world in exchange for quietly tolerating the pain and the brokenness of this one. We speak of not believing in this country that is strong and proud, armed to the teeth and convinced of its superior might that separates itself with borders drawn by long dead men. These fantasies, we agree, are frail and deceptive. To trust in them is to beg for betrayal. And then we pause, the ancestors and I, with the silence thick around us. The next part we know is more difficult. The part where we name the country, the God in which we do believe, in which we do trust. Last week, I was talking with a beloved friend of mine planning for this national vigil that Justin mentioned earlier that the Unitarian Universalist Association is planning for the Thursday right after the election, whatever's happening in that moment. And as my friend and I talked about who would likely be watching, how people might be doing, he asked me, Ashley, can we have a conversation between a black person and a white person now? And he said, because in order to minister to a predominantly white faith that night, I need to understand more about what it's like to be surprised that democracy is fragile or that the American people could elect a tyrant twice and just go about their business. He said, unlike so many of y'all, I've inherited a generations old skepticism of the state and resiliency is my birth rate and it lives in my bones. I am old money here. I know that some of you bring that same old money inheritance. And we can hold both grief and gratitude for that legacy that you bear because we know that it was wrought in both trauma and joyful survival. For those of us who don't come from this kind of hard-won lineage though, a lineage that would better equip us for times such as these, there is so much to learn right now. There's an old spiritual that goes, I'm gonna trust in the Lord, I'm gonna trust in the Lord, I'm gonna trust in the Lord till I die. It's a common one. It's one sung in hundreds of black churches around the country still today. And the God of that hymn 
my old money beloveds have helped me to understand is not the God that the ghosts of my imagination and I have disavowed either. Rather, the God of that hymn is the life force of survival that births new life and tenacious joy into the world, even in the face of death. The spirit of resistance that animates revolution in the hearts of those whom the forces of domination would squash and sweep away. The unbreakable threads of love binding communities together in practices of healing and abundance and mutual protection as a defiant rejection of scarcity and isolation. But the hymn doesn't end with, I'm gonna trust in the Lord. I'm gonna watch Fight and pray, I'm gonna watch, fight and pray. Second verse. I'm gonna treat everybody right, I'm gonna treat everybody right. And the final verse. I'm gonna stay on the battlefield, I'm gonna stay on the battlefield. I'm gonna stay on the battlefield. I'm gonna watch, fight and pray. I am gonna treat everybody right till I die because this theology declares that we are the embodiment of God. So we cannot sit by waiting for salvation from above. No, because we are a part of a cycle responding to the exquisite beauty of this life by gratefully harvesting its gifts and fiercely resisting anything or anyone that would hoard them away for the few rather than spreading them around for the many. In that God, I trust. In my role as the organizing strategy director at the Unitarian Universalist Association, as Justin said earlier, I lead the team that holds the outward facing justice ministries of our denomination, side with love, love resists, climate justice, LGBTQ, multicultural ministries, and of course, this year, you, you, the vote. And as we barrel toward November 3rd, I'm in daily conversations about what we can do to preserve democracy, to protect one another, to be of use if there is massive chaos or uprising or violence in the wake of the elections and in the midst of an ongoing and unmitigated pandemic. Among the folks I'm talking with, there is a common thread of apprehension, of fear and anxiety, because the stakes we all know are unbearably high. But I'm seeing what I think is a groundswell, a new leaning into practices of risk and courage and deep mutual care even and maybe especially among those of us who do not come from the old money lineages of resistance and resiliency. I'm witnessing a deepening trust in one another and in the God of connection, of liberation and of hope. I was born and raised Unitarian Universalist. I grew up at Unity Church right across the river and I've always believed in the power and the potential of this faith, but this year it has astonished me to watch thousands of volunteers and hundreds of UU congregations in all 50 states form these teams 
combating voter suppression, mobilizing voters, having these deep values-based conversations about the issues, and then also providing spiritual sustenance as we engage in the collective spiritual practice of fighting for democracy and liberation. I am so proud to tell you all that our Unitarian Universalist kin, including many of you, have contacted 3 million voters this year. We have hundreds of volunteers nearly 5,000 volunteers across the country who are actively participating. We've got almost half of our UU congregations designating teams of people who are doing this work. We've got folks already highlighted in the New York Times this morning showing up to defend democracy at the polls to make sure everybody can vote safely and without intimidation and refusing to stop acting until all of the votes are counted after this election, no matter how long it takes. Over these months, I've watched as our people have shown up at city council meetings in Phoenix and Minneapolis and a hundred other places testifying that the police will never really keep us safe and that we must invest in real structures of accountability and protection that serve all of the people. I've talked with our congregations in Louisville and Chicago and Kenosha and Rochester, New York, who have opened their buildings to provide sanctuary to protesters and organized uh, spaces for medics fleeing state violence, demanding justice for their communities. I've witnessed Unitarian Universalists proactively mapping the assets of our congregations, ready to leverage our human and financial and infrastructural resources so that we can show up ready and grounded to say a nimble yes and offer what we have to give with courage and generosity, whatever may come our way in the weeks ahead. I don't know what's coming down the pike in these next days and weeks, my friends. Like you, I am sitting with real trepidation about what might happen and fear and hope are my companions in equal measure. But as I imagine the next iteration of that porch chat with the ancestors, surveying all that might be and all that has been I can declare that I trust in the God incarnated by our submerging in the task, by our watching and fighting and praying with and for one another. I trust in the God who births and is born of our shared struggle to be free and to thrive each and every single one of us. I trust in the God who sustains and demands our commitment to forging from the rubble of everything our nation has failed to do a more perfect union. May we all find and name that spirit in which we place our deepest trust. May we be moved by the expansiveness of its invitation to loyalty, to work that is real in these times that demand our courage and our collective action. And in our saying yes, in our showing up, in our finding our roles, our being of use, may we feel ourselves more tightly bound to one another, more trusting and more trustworthy because we are in it together. May it be so. Blessed be Ashe and Amen.
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F I R S T U N I V, to 73256 to make your gift. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.